Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm very disappointed that I'm not there in the room with you, as had been my intention. Um, but I hope you all had a lovely lunch and uh, are ready for um, an exciting discussion. Uh, I would like to first um, talk, just mention to you a little bit about our uh, the, the Fair Trial Free Press Conference. Uh, I am the director of the Government Law Center at Albany Law School, at, which is now the home of the Fair Trial Free Press Conference. We are very pleased to support the conference, the principal purposes of which are to promote and provide education about the essential rights to a fair trial and a free press, and to facilitate discussions between judges, lawyers, and journalists regarding the interplay of the related legal, constitutional, and ethical considerations. I am privileged to begin today's program by acknowledging the presence of and introducing two very distinguished guests. Dean Troy McKenzie, who is just completing his first year as Dean of New York School of Law, is our generous host. Dean McKenzie received his Bachelor of Science from Princeton University and his JD from NYU School of Law. Following law school, he clerked for Judge Pierre Laval of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circus, Circuit and then for Justice John Paul Stevens of the United States Supreme Court. In 2007, he joined the faculty of NYU Law, but left thereafter to serve as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. He returned, however, to NYU Law School in 2017 and has, as I mentioned, uh, become the Dean just about a year ago. He is currently a member of both the Albany Law Institute and the Albany Bankruptcy Institute. Dean McKenzie, I hope that we will soon get to meet in person. Uh, but in the meantime, I, uh, I welcome you, I thank you for hosting us and invite you to say a few words. Uh, thank you so much, Judge. Um, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm uh, Troy McKenzie. It is my pleasure to see all of you here for this very, very important conference, um, Fair Trial Free Speech Conference on Local Media, the Law, and Allegations of Police Misconduct. I just wanted to say a few words about, uh, about this, this gathering. I'm very happy that we are working collaboratively uh, with Albany Law School. And I, I, I need also to recognize my friend, my colleague here at NYU, uh, Judge Al Rosenblatt, who has been instrumental in pulling this together. Uh, I first met uh, Judge Rosenblatt when he came to NYU after retiring from the Court of Appeals. He was just down the hall from me, and we'd bump into each other in the hallways. And, uh, and ever since then, it has been an ongoing and highly enjoyable process of education and learning from him. This conference and the topic is indeed quite important. It's timely and important. And NYU is committed to fostering an environment where perspectives from many, many different diverse angles are encouraged and open discourse is celebrated. And this conference is an opportunity to examine some of the most pressing and delicate issues facing society 
media and the legal system today. And in particular, the role of local media in reporting on alleged police misconduct is an essential one, both in order to ensure transparency and accountability in our justice system, but also from broader and more significant theoretical angles as well. I hope that today's discussion will spark new ideas and insights that will help us better understand all of these issues and find ways to address them. I again want to extend my thanks to the many people who helped to pull this together. Uh, a big thanks to uh, Judge Stein, director of Albany Law School's Government Law Center, as well as, uh, again, my thanks to uh, Judge Rosenblatt. I'd also like to thank Rex Smith at uh, the New York Fair Trial Free Press Conference for uh, the hard work in making today possible. And last but not least, I'd like to thank today's panelists and everyone else who will be part of this important discussion. So with that, thank you all. And um, I look forward to uh, hearing just for a few minutes before I have to get uh, pulled away to the next thing, the discussion. Thank you again, Dean, for your gracious hospitality and for, um, and for um, joining us for whatever time you have available. Now, I'm not sure if um, our next honored guest uh, made it or not. And uh, I was anticipating the newly installed Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals and of the State of New York, Honorable Rowan D. Wilson. Is Judge Wilson there today? Yes, he is. Yes, okay, yes, wonderful, wonderful. Um, I, I had the opportunity to see him just the other day to congratulate him on his appointment and to inform him that he is now officially the president of the executive committee of the Fair Trial Free Press Conference, according to its bylaws. We look forward to a long and productive relationship with Judge Wilson. Thank you, Judge, for being with us today. I would also be remiss if I did not recognize and thank, uh, as Dean uh, McKenzie mentioned, uh, some of the people who were instrumental in making this program happen. First, Madison Kelts and the other NYU staff members who assisted with the logistics. Also, Government Law Center staff members, Richard Rifkin, Chell Miller, Lisa Rivage, Tamar Reiner, and the Albany Law School Communications Department as well as, of course, the Fair Trial Free Press board members, Michael Greigel, Diane Kennedy, Steve Clark, Patrick Woods, and John Gross. Today, we are proud to present to you a discussion addressing legal, political, and ethical issues arising after a journalist is arrested while covering a police-involved shooting. The discussion will be based on a hypothetical, which you should have received. We also welcome those of you who are joining us by Zoom. Today's discussion will be moderated by the Honorable Albert Rosenblatt, retired judge of the New York Court of Appeals, and Rex Smith, former editor of the Albany Times Union. 
We have a very distinguished panel of judges, attorneys, and journalists to engage in our discussion. And just briefly, I'll name them and tell you what they do now. They have very impressive bios, all of them, but I'm not going to take the time today uh, away from their discussion to recite that for you. It's in your materials, and I hope you will review that. But we have today Richard Chacon, Director of News Standards and Practices at NBC News. Honorable Jill Conviser, Acting Justice of the New York County Supreme Court, Criminal Term, First Judicial District. Anne La Barbera, Principal of Anne La Barbera PC, where she focuses on media and entertainment law. Darren Laverne, a partner of Kramer Levin, where he represents clients in um, all high kinds of criminal and civil matters, including trials, hearings, and investigations. Tom Meyer, an award-winning investigative journalist for Newsday. Honorable Robert M. Mandelbaum, judge of the New York City Criminal Court. Honorable Shira Scheinlin, former prosecutor and retired judge of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Tandy Valsingikar, I'm sorry if I butchered that, um, uh, who is legal fellow at Penguin Random House and producer and co-host of Slandertown, a podcast that discusses First Amendment lawsuits and also a frequent writer on First Amendment topics. And Stephen Wu, Executive Assistant DA and Chief of Appeals Div Division of the Manhattan DA's office. In addition um, to reading their bios, uh, if you want to learn more about the Government Law Center, I refer you to our website. I'm not sure if uh, Chell Miller has already uh, given you instructions on um, uh, the CLE requirements, but if you are intending to get CLE, you must submit your affidavit following the pro immediately following the program, either in person or um, by email to Lisa Rivage. And those instructions, again, are all in your um, program information. Uh, Shell, did you discuss the chat and questions and answers? Yes, I did. Okay, <laughs> I then I won't others. repeat all of that. And I, without further ado on my part, um, I turn the program over to Judge Rosenblatt and to uh, Rex. Great. Uh, and I think that I'm, does this have to be, I thought that my, uh, my lab mic, I think I'm, yeah, I'm on here. That's good. All right. Uh, I just want to encourage you to have a good time, panelists. Uh, this is meant to be a, uh, a hypothetical where we explore some issues, uh, sometimes pressing beyond what you might expect to be the uh, natural uh, expectation of your clients, or maybe it would be what your clients would be asking of you uh, in your respective roles. Uh, this is always a, a great uh, opportunity. I've been engaged with New York Fair Trial Free Press since uh, Saul Wachler was chief judge, uh, and we've had some great conversations in this room and uh, upstate and at the federal courthouse uh, here and uh, a number of places where we have, uh, that have been the venue for these uh, conversations over the years. So we're very uh, pleased 
We're just delighted that Albany Law has agreed to become the home of uh, Fair Trial Free Press and look forward to continuing these conversations uh, and uh, twice a year is what we hope to be able to do. Uh, my partner in crime, Judge Rosenblatt, uh, what would you like to say here to get this underway? Yeah, just to <coughs> welcome everyone, I'd also want to point out that uh, in the introductions, uh, Donald, uh, Robert Mandelbaum is an acting judge, acting justice of the Supreme Court in New York. I think we should know that because the administrators know that because when the really tough cases come around, that's where they look to, to him and Judge Convisor. Uh, these are trial judges of the highest order and uh, the litigants feel very, very good when they get before uh, judges of that, of that caliber. I, I would just want to say a word about why we are here and what we have been intending and hoping to do uh, in these uh, conferences by which people like Mike Greigel create uh, diabolical hypotheticals that are designed to create friction, if not clashes, uh, between the various branches. We all arise out of the Bill of Rights. We in the judiciary, by and large, at least procedurally, out of the Sixth Amendment, fair trial, uh, right to counsel, speedy trial, and the like, and the press out of the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. The founders probably imagined that there might be collisions from time to time. But as we know, being in public life, there will be times, and surely I learned this when I was the district attorney and then county judge, that there are going to be times when there are conflicts. Uh, we, we live in the world of conflicts, and there's a lot that's gray. And at these sessions, we do not expect to somehow make the conflicts disappear. The, the third branch <clears throat> is an independent institution that is not necessarily aligned with the free press. The free press is an independent institution, and it's not their job to help the judges or the lawyers or to make them look good. So there are going to be collisions. However, however, with programs like this, we're able to create hypotheticals so that we can discuss and adjust matters so that we understand each other's institutional viewpoints. And when we do meet in a congenial environment like this, we all learn a lot, and life goes on, and we continue to be we think uh, pretty good in our relationship with one another, but always imperfect because that's the design and we wouldn't want it any other way. So with that introduction and with the uh, hypothetical that's uh, before us all, uh, we, can, we can get underway. Rex, please uh, start it off. Actually, that's great. Uh, and we're not going to read every piece of the hypothetical. We're not going to spend the same amount of time on each piece. Uh, because some, is, uh, some of these pieces are more interesting than others. Uh, and we, we aren't going to care so much, in fact, if we don't get to every issue, because our goal is just to have more conversation about as many topics as we have. You've all read the hypothetical. This begins in a newsroom, uh, not a large newsroom, perhaps, like uh, the New York Times or NBC News, uh, but a place where uh, a reporter might be monitoring a scanner and suddenly realizes that, the reporter, uh, Blaine Scoop, doesn't understand what's coming on the scanner because it's been encrypted. Uh, the mayor of the community saying, well, sure, you can have the information if you appropriately file a freedom of information request, uh, which, of course, will delay it by some, sometimes by years. 
Uh, so we begin the question of whether that's even legally permissible. And you know, Anne LaBarbera, since you were the first panelist in the room today, uh, I'll like, ask you this question first, being a, uh, a lawyer who represented media interests sometimes. Do you think that if your client were uh, from the Daily Bugle, that you would say that uh, there's a, a case to be made that it's uh, illegal for the municipality to restrict the police scanner to uh, encrypt it that way? I certainly think it would be unconstitutional. Why is that? It seems to me that would just be protecting the interests of the state, uh, the, the uh, police being able to communicate uh, with each other. I, I don't think that's a legitimate state interest to keep that information away from the public. I don't know if someone else wants to argue, you know, to debate that with me. We have someone from a district attorney's office. Would you, would you agree with that, Mr. Wu? Are you, uh, are you going to say that it's un, un, uh, unconstitutional for the police to be able to communicate with each other without uh, everybody listening yeah. in? I mean, I don't think our office deals with that that often, but I will say I will say this. I think obviously there's an interest in maintaining confidentiality in these discussions. Um, police scanner data is some form of government speech that I assume is not subject to First Amendment restrictions, and there are well-established state laws, FOIL and others, about disclosure of government records that would cover when these things are revealed to the public. So I assume those laws would control here. I don't know that they guarantee live access to government proceedings like that. But Tom Mayer, if you're a reporter in that newsroom, the way that you find out about something going on, the way that you're able to do your job is to be able to get there. You're not going to even know this, so you would... Uh how would you even find out? You would be unable to know what's going on in your community, and you deprive citizens of newsworthy information if you don't have access to that. Uh, in reading the uh, hypothetical, it brought back memories of the first newsroom that I worked in, and the uh, the police scanner blared throughout the whole newsroom all day, all day long. So if something really hot happened that we had to cover, suddenly there was a lot more chatter on that radio. I think today, though, uh, social media does provide the opportunity for being a, a first alarm of, uh, and, and often we'll find out things through social media in a way that we didn't uh, say maybe 10, 15 years ago. Nonetheless, I think certainly every news organization would want access to a police scanner without having to file a FOIA for it. And I would jump back in and say the role that the press <clears throat> plays, and this is you know, constitutional, constitutionally contemplated by the people who wrote the Constitution, is to keep an eye on the government, including the police. So that's why I would see it as unconstitutional to, stop the, to have the police stop the press from understanding what they're putting out on the airwaves. That would be my argument. The difficulty is that the, uh, in the amount of time that it would take you as a reporter to file a FOIL request and to gain access to that, the crime scene will have long been closed down. In fact, the defendant will probably be serving a sentence. Uh, so the question, maybe it would come uh, before Judge Mandelbaum, uh, the question would be, if you have a, uh, uh, a media client seeking immediate access to, to say this happens once or twice and is, uh, seeking your action on compelling the, uh, the municipality to abandon this practice of uh, encrypting the scanner traffic. How would you uh, entertain that?
Meanwhile, the reporter is hearing uh, social media, as Tom points out, and is going to dash to the scene. Let me just jump in here with NBC News. Now, while you're dealing with networks, you also have O&O stations. You've got local newsrooms out there. In the local newsroom, uh, well, and, and Richard, you've run local newsrooms in, in radio as well. If you're in a newsroom and you have a reporter who's getting social media reports about uh, an officer-involved shooting, at what point do you think it's safe to actually put something like that out? These days, we don't have the luxury of uh, publication deadlines hours and hours away, uh, as print has typically had it, uh, your deadline is immediate. Are you going to, uh, if you're running a newsroom, are you going to allow something to be posted to your newsroom uh, well, whatever the name is of that blue bird that used to be a place where people uh, posted news. Are you going to put news out there right away on this topic, or are you going to say, no, we're going to wait until we can actually get access to official information? You know, as, as tempting as it might be, first of all, let me just say thank you for having me. This is really, I'm delighted to be here and, and to join all of you. Um, I would say that um, the initial impulse to try to put something up in the competitive environment, uh, as strong as it might be, is uh, probably not the best way to go. I think the best way to go would be to try to verify um, the posts that are up on social media, reaching out to the people who posted them, just to try to get a little bit more um, background, context, um, um, and then try as best we can. I mean, I wouldn't stop from sending a reporter out there, Blaine, um, and try to get what we can from on scene. Um, and trying as best we can to maybe look at some other uh, avenues of sources, say first responders who may be responding to the scene other than the police. Um, sometimes they're better at sort of being more straightforward about what's happening, what they're responding to. Um, and oftentimes their scanners are not going to be blocked the way maybe police scanners might be blocked. Um, um, so, uh, but as far as posting something right away, no. We need to do our due diligence. We need to do some verification and some confirmation to see uh, what it is that's being posted out there, and what we can verify as best we can. Uh, many newsrooms today, especially uh, at the network, but also even at the local level, have teams of kind of forensic young journalists who are incredibly well-equipped and experienced at, at uh, scrubbing social media channels and trying to try to verify as quickly as they can, uh, either through geolocation or some other tools that are out there to try to just to as best we can in the moment, figure out what we know and what is, uh, can be confirmed. Um, and that helps us get to what can be reported and posted. Um, uh, and I think it varies from newsroom to newsroom where that level of comfort sits. Um, uh, we have a number of steps before we can put something out. But at a local level, I think that the bar is probably a little bit lower. Um, um, but there still should be some steps taken to, to make sure that what is going to be posted or reported has been at least taken some steps to verify. So before I turn this back over to my colleague, Al Rosenblatt, I just want to think about this, this aggressive reporter here who, who you've got running off to the crime scene, uh, who is uh, encountering a police barricade 
from being able to get anywhere close to where the body is and manages to convince a homeowner who is allowed to get through the police barricade. The reporters cannot, but people who live nearby are allowed through. And so, uh, Tanvi, if you are contacted by the newsroom, let's say that uh, reporter Scoop over here uh, uh, manages to get a message off to his editor, uh, they've blocked me out of here, I'm gonna get through the line by hitching a ride with a homeowner, uh, call our lawyer. Are you okay with him getting inside the police barricade uh, by hmm, hitchhiking a ride with a homeowner and in effect uh, skirting the uh, police restriction on keeping outsiders out? Um, so I personally would be okay with it because I think while I agree the police have a right to, you know, the, the First Amendment doesn't guarantee the press greater rights than the general public. Um, it certainly doesn't guarantee them less. And the fact that residents are allowed to be in this cordoned off zone while the press is not just seems like the, the press pending is a pretext and they just want to prevent the press from getting that information. So I would personally be okay with my reporter hitching a ride and, and getting access that way. I mean, there's certainly no law against saying like a resident can't invite someone into their home or into their car or whatever it may be. Um, so yes, even though the reporter's uh, pretext is to get into the scene of the crime, I would be okay with it. Let me just double check over here. Stepping away from the panel, David McCraw, this was litigated in the administration of uh, Rudy Giuliani, I believe, was it not? I'm not sure it ever actually got litigated, but certainly it was negotiated with a lawsuit in the background. Uh-huh. And to the satisfaction of the press? It, it worked for a while. <laughs> but that well, satisfies. That's, right, yeah, that's sort of the fundamental thing, isn't it? Right. Uh, so that's confirming that at least uh, the media managed to get beyond the holding pens that the Julian administration had established uh, for reporters uh, so that... Uh, it, of course, made him a great favorite of reporters throughout his political career. Um, that was just a sarcastic comment. You can uh, pick it up from here. Uh, mm -hmm. Hello, everyone. Joining us on Zoom, I apologize for the brief interruption, but I do need to share a CLE code word. Ah. For those of you who are on Zoom and are seeking CLE credit, I will be sharing it on your screen. Just a moment, sorry. All right. For those of you who are on Zoom, the first CLE code word you'll need to add to your forms is reporter. That should be visible on your screen. Reporter is your first code word. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, I don't mind telling you there were two things in this very good hypothetical that I find highly debatable and I know we're in a forum here where everyone is very congenial. We're all on our best behavior. That somebody says, oh yes, First Amendment, of course, Constitution, constitutional rights, sure. Well, we're not gonna let you off that easy. We all extol the Constitution. And when you say, well, I'm for it because it's a constitutional right, that just doesn't go far enough, at least uh, from the perspective of people who are uh, in the midst of what might turn out to be a dispute. So let me pose this as a private citizen. The police are broadcasting over the air from headquarters. The uh, shooting just took place on the corner of Elm and Market. The suspect is running away. Here's the description of the suspect. He's running down Elm Street. 
uh, and we want to send car 52, car 47, and car 110. Do we want the whole world to listen in on that and create chaos? Do we really, is that what we really want in the name of the First Amendment? Can you defend that to me? I mean, I don't think it's private information. It's, you know, it's the it's government function and the press is supposed to oversee what the government is doing. Now, there might be parts of that, you know, like you're saying specific cars and specific officers' names and whatnot that might be a little bit more private. Um, but they, they do also use uh, codes. You know, they have codes for things and whatnot. And so, I mean, to that extent, you could keep some of the stuff private. But I don't think they should be operating in secret. I really don't well, no think they one, should be no operating one, in secret. No, no one's going to say the police should operate in secret. This is, that would be if menacing. It's, yeah, We're if it's complete. About whether the police should be able to uh, act so as to go to a scene without interference by people who are, might interfere with catching the murderer. Yeah, but now, you know, as our reporter pointed out, now they're scrubbing social media and they're hearing this information anyway. So keeping the information, the government keeping the information that they have from the public, it, that's more accurate information that the public should have than what's than the rumors that are going around social media. There might even be someone on social media claiming to be there giving false information that isn't there. Should the public foil. know that car 42, go ahead, please. For Newsday or for any paper here in the city, why should I not be able to expect that if I show up to a major scene and I show my police authorized press pass that I amn't allowed to go in there and that in other words that I would be actually help that there may even be an officer that helps escort me to the scene in a way that the rest of the public I mean I understand that uh, the First Amendment may not uh, give the press more rights than the general public. But let's face it, in a well-financed, fi a well-coordinated police department, we have that on Long Island, certainly with the NYPD, why you couldn't be escorted to an appropriate place in the scene so that you could actually witness what's going on. Sounds right. It's a good point. The other question is, now let's say, I'll, I'll ask Judge Conviser, uh, in this hypothetical, the reporter has footage or notes. The police grabbed it for so-called police purposes. Can the police just grab the <coughs> reporter's notes and take them away and say, we have the notes and you can't get them back? I mean, do we really want the police to behave that way and then they have to bring an application? I guess we used to call it replevin 100 years ago. What do you call that? Have you ever had any kind of application where the police grab the reporter's notes or footage and, and you want to get it back? And the reporter sitting in jail? Well, no, I haven't had that, and I don't know about reporters sitting in jail. I do have applications for video and for cameras in the courtroom on a somewhat regular basis. But there's an overarching issue here that no one has touched on that I think might be particularly unpopular uh, in this group, and I'm just going to raise it, which is at the end of the day, as a judge, and I'm sure Robert and some of the other judges would agree with me, that the goal is to make sure defendants get fair trials. So. At what right? At what point, when we have competing uh, interests, First Amendment, you know, Strickland versus Washington, whatever we have that is competing out there, and we want to make sure we still have to look at it through a prism of, um, you know, the public may have a right to know. The, the, what do we want our media to do, and how do we protect defendants to make sure and ensure? they end up with fair trials, that the public is not tainted, that a jury pool is not tainted. I understand that's my job when I'm 
helping select the jury to make sure the individuals who are voidered are truthful and are going to be fair and impartial in that particular analysis. But when I have a press case, I got to bring everybody in the back and have a conversation. What did you hear? What did you learn? How will it affect you? Will it? And um, I think there's a responsibility on the part of the media, which might be unpopular in this group, in that context. And I think that has to be part of the discussion here today. Good, good point. Now, here we have a uh, fair trial is, of course, important, but we have uh, we're not talking about so much a fair trial in this hypothetical. The reporter's in jail. The police chief says, well, we didn't arrest the reporter because we believe in the First Amendment. Well, when you put the cuffs on someone and keep them in the slammer for three hours, to my mind, that is an arrest. So what do you do if they come running in with an application, I want my notes back and I, want my, I don't want the reporter out of jail? What do you do? It's, it's in a way, it might be habeas corpus, would it not be? It would be habeas. So can you make a little bit of a ruling here and tell us what you would ask or what you would try to find out? It's not entirely clear what charge, at least at this stage, the reporter was being detained or arrested for. If he's being charged, she's being charged with trespass for being in that scene, that's, that's a possibility. If she's being charged with obstructing governmental administration because there's a claim that she physically interfered with the police officers on the scene trying to uh, maintain the crime scene, trying to apprehend the suspect, uh, the, that might be a more meritorious charge, depending on what happened. We don't know if the reporter just stood there or got in the way or blocked somebody. Uh, if she did any of those things, there might be a, a legitimate charge. There might be an actual arrest. And the seizure of the notes following the arrest or the detention is going to be analyzed under the Fourth Amendment. If there was a lawful arrest, then anything that was on the person of the reporter or in her hand, the notes, were, uh, would, would be lawfully seized uh, incident to the lawful arrest. If the arrest was unlawful in the first place because there was no cause for it, there was no probable cause for it, the uh, reporter hadn't committed any violation of, of the law, of the penal law, then the seizure that followed on it, it was the fruit of the arrest, would be unlawful as well. And the reporter should be able to get those notes back. The reporter should always be able ultimately to get the notes back. But the seizure in the moment wouldn't be unlawful if the arrest had been lawful. Now, it might be that a mere trespass, even if it technically violated the statute, uh, on, the, on these facts would not be able to be enforceable because of First Amendment, competing First Amendment rights where other people were allowed on scene and it was only the press that was being singled out as saying that their presence there was unlawful, whereas residents' presence was lawful. But those are the issues that have to be resolved in the habeas so, corpus. Judge Mandelman made a very important, critical Fourth Amendment distinction. If the reporter went into the, over the police line, got in the way, was creating a problem, mischief for the police, then they would arrest her and incident to the arrest, they would seize the notes or the footage. Let's make it a little bit harder, where the reporter is outside the, uh, the uh, uh, line and starts snapping pictures and interviewing people, and the police say, hey, you're on the scene, you're taking pictures, we want those pictures, and they grab, they, they uh, restrain the, the reporter and grab, and grab the pictures. What about that? I would not think the police would be permitted to do that. And in fact, there's a new statute that was passed 
in uh, 2019 or 2020, specifically providing that the that any member of the public, not just the press, has a right to film the police as they're engaging in their law enforcement actions and that the police are no longer, as they used to do routinely, permitted to stop someone from filming them while they're engaging in that action, so long as, of course, they're not committing the crime of obstructing governmental administration and, and interfering. So you can't stop them, the police can't stop them from filming, and the police can't seize their camera in order to stop them from and that's filming. that's a ruling that you would make on an application for retrieval of the items seized if they were seized. Right? Which, again, I, I would think would have to go to the civil term. I don't know that that would be part of the habeas corpus, because the habeas corpus proceeding would uh, address the release of the, of the detainee, of the arrestee, but it has nothing to say about any evidence that might have been seized after or perhaps in your hypothetical before the person had been taken into custody in any event, but, but that, which is not to say there wouldn't be some other civil action for that. Maybe we're plebin, as you say. Could the police make a case that they uh, need this evidence because of an ongoing investigation and that they uh, have a use for it because they're still trying to figure out what went on? Sure, I mean, they do that in other contexts, for example, um, perhaps a hit and run, someone gets killed and they, they have a car in custody and some, the person who owns the car says, I want it back. So there, there is power to do that. Um, I'm sure you have had those uh, See, situations. See, would you come in for the police on this? Would you, in a court proceeding before Judge Con Conviser or before Judge Mandelbaum, would you come in representing the police or would you take a neutral stance or would you say, no, this time we're not lining up with the police, we're ordering the police to give it back? Well. I'm not sure about coming in on the police's behalf, but the DA's office has requested information from reporters before, which is independent evidence of a crime, sometimes for a hit and run. Sometimes there's a, there's a case, I think, involving Newsday where a reporter actually uh, interviewed somebody in prison, and they gave additional information about the crime. And so there was an effort to get that information. There's a standard that has to be met for that. Most of the time, reporters' unreported information can't be disclosed to the prosecutor. But if it's helpful and it meets that standard, I think we would request it. And if you're <clears throat> contacted, Judge, by counsel for the media organization to say, our reporter has just been detained by, uh, what is the name of this, uh, by Scarborough Police, uh, we're, we have an application for immediate relief. Uh, I need you to get this guy out of uh, lockout. You're going to take that case, you're going to entertain that right away from, you're going to take a uh, convening hearing by telephone, what are you going to do? Well, if, if the habeas corpus proceeding were filed, uh, it would have to be filed. If there's a claim of an Ill unlawful detention, then the, uh, it wouldn't be one-sided, it wouldn't be an ex parte application if there had been a prosecution that was ongoing or there was going to be a prosecution that was ongoing, both sides would have to be heard. You wouldn't hear simply from the press alone, of course, uh, even assuming that it was the press more broadly that had standing to challenge the or to seek the release of this particular person. Uh, based on the way the hypothetical plays out, it contemplates that there is in fact a criminal prosecution that is launched, that continues, and uh, in that circumstance, you know, habeas corpus is a, uh, not rare, 
but particularized proceeding that arises in unusual circumstances where someone is automatically entitled to release uh, separate and apart from the normal criminal proceeding. On these facts, it's, this person's been arrested, presumably charged with a crime, because it, we know it ultimately plays out that there's going to be a trial. And at that point, the person is really in line for arraignment. And there's not a mechanism to say, unlike any other defendant who's charged with a crime just because they're a reporter, they don't need to continue along in the process until their arraignment. At the arraignment, it will be determined, of course, whether they're going to be released or what the terms of their release is going to be. But uh, as, as you've articulated it, to short circuit that and say there's a habeas corpus proceeding uh, seems unrealistic. I don't know how that defendant would be in a different position from every defendant to say, oh, you know what, I don't, let's, let's cut this short. I, I need to be released even before I've gone through the arraignment process, and, which would append, I think, the, uh, the mechanisms for criminal prosecution. I'm assuming that you know, Mr. Wu's office has taken on this case. If they are persuaded, they're really the ones who might be persuaded earlier on, even before arraignment, to decline prosecution and order the immediate release if they think there isn't a prosecutable case. But the court is not likely to get involved at that stage in deciding whether on those limited facts they could possibly even have a prosecutable case such that someone can't be even held till, until arraignment. Yes, uh, George, let me give you my Yeah, no, in, in terms of this last point, I mean, the answer, it seems to me, is not through the courts, but through meetings such as this one where we're here today, we established links, contacts with the, the, the police department, DCPI, and if one of our journalists got arrested in the middle of the night, we had phone numbers, email addresses of, of, of executives in the police department to call to try to get our journalists released. Because really, the journalist is on a somewhat different terms than the, the actual defendant, right? Uh, and usually, without taking sides, it's the police overreaction that causes a, a journalist doing his job to get thrown in the pokey. And so we try to get him out through calling these people. And, and more often than not, that actually uh, worked at least uh, you know, within a few hours, not, not immediately, but within a few hours. The other thing I was just going to say in terms of the judge's uh, emphasis on, on the fair trial right, that's the judge's responsibility. I mean, I think the important thing is that the, the press basically realizes that, acknowledges that. But that's not an absolute answer. It's a balance between that and the public's First Amendment right. Even though the public's not a party directly to a court case, it certainly is a party in interest. I mean, the public's right to know what goes on in the judicial process and what goes in society and what the police are doing is important. And I think that always has to be balanced. So what's important, I think, is that it's a balance between the Sixth and First Amendment, no matter where in the process this occurs. Uh, not an absolute, well, I have to make sure that the defendant gets a fair trial right, and that's the end of the analysis. I think that's well, wrong. Well, I have to, I'd like to respond to that, because I think that, um, well, I agree it's ba a balancing, and I think Judge Rosenblatt used the phrase collision, because I think that's what it is. It is a collision of competing interests. The entire discussion that we, we were having early on was talking about balance without talking about that with which we are balancing. 
So while I agree with you completely, there is a First Amendment right that has to be balanced against the defendant's rights, we still have to have the, the discussion and make sure we understand the context in which and what is competing. Uh, well, I agree I, with you that not one trumps, but forgive the phrase, but um, <laughs> uh, yes, it would be uh, a collision of those rights and a balancing, and that's what judges do. I mean, when it's a hard question, any question that's before us is always about uh, balance. But by, by the way, just I, I agree totally, but in terms of balancing, I, I in terms of the first question you asked, I would balance that the newsroom doesn't have a right to listen to contemporaneous scanner conversation. Uh, but I do think that a newsroom ought to get the tapes of those scanner conversations in you know, a day, two days, three days thereafter to know what happened. But I think contemporaneously that goes beyond the pale. And I, I would disagree that the press has a right to get it right away. Is there a test of? Uh the amount of time that is reasonable? I think it's the it's only when the police can make a show could make a showing that it would hamper their their case of apprehending the uh, the defendant. The case law on that is to what is a reasonable amount of time hampering their investigation? I think each I don't think it's a matter of time and I think it's a matter of the facts and you have yeah. to analyze the facts. Well I, also I don't think it's just a matter of apprehending the defendant. I think someone in law enforcement would argue that if you're in any way, if you're releasing it while the investigation is ongoing, even after the person has been apprehended, it could potentially interfere with the investigation. I mean, I think law enforcement takes that position all the time. Yeah, they take the position, but, you know, potentially is a very broad word. I mean, they say, well, the file's open, the file's open for three years, that doesn't mean they really are investigating or that there really would be a, a significant harm to the investigation in letting a few scanner reports that are contemporaneous I'm not sure how that harms the investigation. I, I totally agree. I mean, and as a defense lawyer, I mean, we argue all the time. I think there's too much deference to law enforcement. They oftentimes, you know, it's just a motion towards, you know, it's going to interfere with the investigation. There's no requirement of an affidavit. There's no hearing, nothing beyond that. So I would certainly welcome, you know, more pressure on that point. I think we should also add that in terms of that precise uh, situation, the media has helped law enforcement in many situations because they do have scoop or whoever it is, giving information and contacts to help solve crimes and, and apprehend individuals that they feel should be apprehended. So um, I think it's probably to some extent a symbiotic relationship more than perhaps this conference is even. Well, let me depart from the hypothetical in that regard just for a second here. Richard Chacon, is there any hesitation on your part running a newsroom if you have law enforcement saying, you know, you guys have obtained this video from uh, onlookers, people who are uh, witnesses to this shooting, uh, which you're airing, uh, excerpts, and uh, law enforcement is saying, you know, for our investigation, we would like to see that. Do uh, you have any reluctance to turn over that uh, video that's been shared with you by uh, citizens who shot that on their cell phones, say? Hesitancy? Yes, of course. Um, we managed to get the video ourselves and verify it ourselves and get it to a point where we felt comfortable putting it on the air. Um, if you're curious to see the video, you can see what we've put on the air. Um, and uh, I don't think that we should be in a position to be sort of sharing what we have with any other sort of interested parties. Um, uh, 
Yeah. If, if, if you're, Mr. Laverne, if you are representing the police officer who might be charged with a crime as a result of this shooting, uh, you're probably going to want access to all the video that he has, right? Uh, 100%. 100%. I mean, I think that's, you know, typically uh, as, a, as a criminal, uh, as a lawyer for a criminal defendant, um, after the, the case is charged, we would get discovery from the mm -hmm. government. Um, but it's also, oftentimes the defense is put in a difficult position because it's not so easy to go out and subpoena information outside of the government. There's certain restrictions and, and rules around that. So, but I would certainly uh, want the information. I, I have a question, though, actually, as a real-world matter. Um, I know it is, it's, it is unusual um, for journalists to be subpoenaed for their sources and such. There's a number of levels that the Justice Department, for example, has to go through to do that. But is it, is it becoming more common uh, for news organizations to get either subpoenas or law enforcement requests for the you know, videos or, or the substance uh, things that come into the, the newsroom that you know, actually have evidence uh, on them? Not, not, so, not, not giving up your sources, but giving up the material. Yeah, I think it varies uh, from a case to case, depending on the source of the video. Um, if the videos are something that we were able to find on social media, I think our argument is if we could find it on social media, so can you. Um, and so we shouldn't be put in a position where we're asked to give it up if it's something that we know that is obtainable through other means. Um, we did our homework, so you know, presumably everybody else can too. Um, I would imagine that there could be some rare cases where uh, there may be a more compelling argument to be made um, in terms of evidence. Um, we would never want to be put in a position where we're interfering or hindering in the process of, of you know, justice being served or followed. Um, and I think that as far as, you know, in terms of how we respond to these kinds of scenes, we clearly instruct our journalists who are on the ground and our producers never to sort of get in the way of, of, of what's happening in terms of an investigation or how things are playing out. Um, uh, it's a fine line sometimes that we walk between being the observers and, um, and not being part of what's happening. Um, but uh, I think in terms of the, the specific question you ask, I think it has to, a lot to do, it just depends on the source of where we've gotten this material uh, and how comfortable we feel about sharing it and what we're sharing. This discussion brings to mind a case that the Court of Appeals decided, I think when you were on the court, Judge Rosenblatt, people be combest, where I, and Mr. Wu said that if he were the prosecutor, he would certainly want all of the video that news reporter had gotten, and in Combest it was the defendant who wanted all of the outtakes of video that had been taken pursuant to a news show. It was, it was, it was like a, a, a cops-like show, that old show that they used to have. Uh, and uh, some of it aired, but there was all sorts of other underlying outtake material that existed, and the defendant wanted to subpoena all of that from the news organization, the prosecutor wasn't in possession of it either, I believe, and the court ultimately engaged in exactly the type of balance that Judge Convisor says courts engage in, and uh, the court determined in the end that the fair trial and due process rights of a criminal defendant weigh very heavily when the news organizations are asserting First Amendment rights in what were then non-confidential materials, and there's obviously there's a statute that governs non-confidential materials, confidential materials, and they suggested that the rule might have come out, the result might have come out differently 
had there been confidential sources involved, but insofar as these were non-confidential uh, materials, the Court of Appeals ordered that the news organization did have to turn them over to the defendant. Judge Shannon, I'm dying to hear your perspective on this from a uh, you know, federal constitutional standpoint here. Yes, thank you. Uh, we're 45 minutes into this, and we've heard a lot of views, and some of mine are going to be repetitive. I can't help that. But just to weigh in at this point, let's go back to the scanner. I agree with George. He, he just got in just a little bit ahead of me. I don't see that there's any right to have contemporaneous uh, communications while something's breaking and ongoing. It could interfere with what's going on. When, when you gave the hypothetical of the car numbers and the police officers, I don't want people in the way there. You've got to get to that crime and protect the public. So I don't think they have to give contemporaneous access. So I respectfully disagree with that point of view. As far as penning the people out, that was the next topic. Uh, can you have those barriers? Again, I think the safety of the crime scene has to be paramount. We have to consider that, that it, it, it's a crime scene. So you, don't, you can't have people trampling all over it. Now, these people, these, the press here, went in with the resident. That's fine. I agree with whoever said the resident has an absolute right to bring whoever they want to bring in their car. So there's no trespass. So jumping to the third one, I think there's no probable cause for an arrest here. I think it's a, basically an outrageous arrest. Therefore, I think the seizure is outrageous. I think it would be suppressed. It, there was, it would be immediately returned. I don't think a federal judge, for example, would allow this to go forward very long. I think there'd be an immediate habeas, an immediate release, a return of the materials, because it was a wrongful arrest and a wrongful seizure. So I may have caught up with where I think we were up to, with one or two exceptions toward the end here, but those are my quick views. In the second half, I think there's some topics uh, that I've confronted many times. Yeah. Yeah. Can I also raise a question with regard to the materials? So let's say hypothetically, and I do agree with the judge that, that that was an illegal seizure and an illegal seizure of the person and the materials. But let's say hypothetically it was not an illegal seizure of the person and those materials are owed to the DA to help prosecute a case, a crime has been committed. There's a separate question here of does the newsroom get a copy of those materials? You know, just because someone has committed a crime and obtained this information illegal, illegally, does that mean that their newsroom doesn't get access to it? And that's really in the civil realm more than the criminal realm. Right, and, and I've certainly, sorry, certainly had those applications, and I would definitely say they get, the, they get it back as a copy, even if it's, even if it's maintained by the prosecutor, they, they get it back. Sure, that, yeah, and they and get it back fast, they get it back fast, too. Mm -hmm. So that even if the person has been seized legally, maybe they're in prison, one of their colleagues can be using this information to continue the reporting. And just to clarify, Richard, from a newsroom standpoint, you don't have a, do you have a problem with uh, your newsroom using information that uh, through no fault of your newsroom was illegally obtained? Let me just rephrase that. Uh, <laughs> By mistake. You did not commit the crime yourself in getting it, but it is uh, material that did not belong to NBC News. Right. So um, I think there would have to be discussions about, um, candid discussions with the reporter about how this was obtained, through whom, um, what, um, what we feel comfortable um, what we've done to verify this, what we've done to get comment from any of the interested parties about this, um, and what we feel comfortable showing. I mean, what meets our standards for telling the story um, and doesn't sort of create a 
hyperbolic tone or doesn't sort of um, uh, uh, just exaggerate things that we're uh, not comfortable sort of standing behind. And so I think that, you know, again, it's a case-by-case -case thing and where this video came from and what's in the video um, and what we feel comfortable showing in terms of um, the verification that we've done um, uh, on this piece of content. So, um, yeah, but I, I think that we could find ourselves in a position where we're comfortable showing this, um, even if it means that there could be some people who could face some kind of uh, legal ramifications. Sure, um, we're getting close to the Pentagon Papers. I mean, yeah. the press in the end publishes the papers, right. regardless of how they were obtained wrongfully right. or not by somebody else, right. they legitimately come into your hands. As you, long as you we vet do. It, have, you vet right. it, you right. investigate, and you publish. Right. <laughs> Hi. Yes. Sorry. Um, hi. I'd like to uh, I'd like to respond to something Judge Scheinland has said before, and that uh, my colleague Anne LaBarber also touched on about police radio encryption. And uh, Judge, uh, your your question may be rhetorical. I don't know. Was whether or not the public has the right, and therefore the press has the right to listen in to police radio transmissions. Historically. I think the uh, two-way radio was invented something like 100 years ago, and ever since it was invented, the public had the ability to listen in to police and other emergency service transmissions. First, it was by crystal radio sets. Then they got smaller and smaller. Then it was scanners using crystals. You could pick five or six channels, and you could listen through that. And then eventually it got to be digitally controlled, and scanners can now listen to a few hundred stations at once. Uh, but again, should, uh, do we want the public to know that there is an accident or a robbery in progress or something going on in a particular location? Why not? The NYPD has at least 100 radio stations. The FDNY has another 100 or so. Not all of these are broadcasting incredibly sensitive information. When you hear something about a 1052-1053 accident, uh, ambulance may be needed. Who cares? What's the difference? The challenge that I always make, it's just now that in recent times, particularly in locations like Nassau County, where the current NYPD commissioner previously served, where they've gone to encrypted radios because they technologically they have the ability to do it, only now have people been saying, gee, this is a great idea. Why don't we hide everything from the public? And yes, whether or not uh, we have the right to do this. You can argue the other way, well, excuse me, whether the press has the right to listen. You can argue the other way that this is a public record and it's being contemporaneously made because I should point out that every single radio transmission is recorded. So, you know, yes, access, access one year later or two years later, that's worthless. But why, why can't we have it now? And the, ultimately, I don't want to take up your time, but the question that I always raise is have the proponents of the of radio encryption make a showing saying we need this because the following 15 incidents have happened in the past year in which people or the press especially listening into the radio have caused a conflict with an emergency i challenge them to do that i'm waiting for the day they can do that the problem is doing this case by case there will be some cases where a contemporaneous listening in that has people rushing to the scene would be dangerous and would affect a crime scene dangerously or an accident dangerously. But you're right, most of the time it wouldn't. But how do you do that in advance? How do you 
do it one by one by one. You don't have time to analyze Oh, that's it. So, that's so let me just finish. So as George said, as long as you have the access quickly thereafter, not necessarily contemporaneous because it could affect the ongoing crime or accident, but as long as you get it in hours later, there's no, there's no real detriment, it seems to me, to have to wait that long. You say a year. But once you say a year, you, make, you, know, you win your case on that argument. But if you get it the next day or the next hour, that may be okay. By too. the time you get it, the scene of the news event, particularly if it's a crime scene, will have been sanitized by law enforcement. They will have moved everything out of the way. They will have taken everyone out of the way of relevance. And if you're not there quickly, as in, for example, the case involving, and for, forgive me that I am blanking now of the gentleman in Staten Island, who was, uh, who was arrested uh, involving something involving the sale of cigarettes. Oh, Eric Gardner. Eric yeah, Gardner. thank you. Thank you. Sorry for Eric blanking Gardner. out. Eric, Gardner, yeah. Eric Gardner's case is known only because a photographer for a newspaper was listening to his scanner and heard about it. Trust me, if we would have given it access 15 minutes later, nobody would have gotten anything. But, so, except that these days there are citizens who are always filming these things going on, and somebody has tape or a surveillance camera on a lamp, lamppost there and that's always a record. And one of these citizens got the Pulitzer Prize for being able to photograph George Floyd yeah. being killed by the police. Right. So that's why I'm saying we show me an example now, not hypothetically, of where the police radio transmission caused somebody to have suffer serious personal injury or something else to happen. And finally, the issue before involving, uh, well, if the police uh, want to um, charge you with obstruction of government administration or resisting arrest or failure to comply, the three often most given charges against particularly photojournalists in New York City, those are often pretextual. The typical scenario is uh, police uh, approach a group of photojournalists and one officer will say, move back, oh, you're under arrest. And then they'll say, and yes, we're going to take your camera because that's evidence. Well, you know, you want to take the camera, you need a warrant if you want to seize evidence, if I recall the Fourth Amendment correctly. So these are pretextual arrests. Well, it's a good point, and uh, we're dealing in this particular subtopic with police behavior. Uh, I want to uh, take a look at it from a different perspective and ask my friends over here uh, questions dealing with the ethics of the, uh, of the media, the ethics of the press. So I would pose this question as to whether there are, any, there are any limits at all to what we might consider unethical or illegal behavior that would inhibit your going with the story or the article or the film. We know, of course, that if the police grab evidence improperly under the exclusionary rule map against Ohio, it's not coming in. But would you, uh, would you put any restriction at all on uh, unethically obtained evidence or illegally detained evidence by the media. So it's not a hypothetical. Let me supply the fact. We'll go like this. The reporter, knowing that the police are allowing people who live in the area to drive through, the reporter lies and says, I live there, and drives through. So we start with a lie. You might call it a white lie, whatever, but it's a lie. Gets out of the car, jumps over the police barricade, starts fighting with the police, pushing the police around, snapping pictures at that point, and then the cops want to grab the person, the 
the reporter for snapping pictures. The reporter then takes the film, the camera, the notes, throws them to a companion, goes down to the New York Times, and there's McCaw sitting there. They, they, and they say, Dave, did we go with this story? It was obtained, it was illegally obtained. Uh, the reporter was fighting with the police uh, based on, first of all, a lie, getting into the barricade, fighting with the police, and then, uh, but we have the, we have the footage. Are there, are there any limitations at all as to whether and when you would run with such a story? So we're now asking you at the desk or in counsel's office, what, uh, you want to put your heads together here or what you would do? <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. You know, we're really in trouble, Judge, when you just start asking the lawyers the ethics questions. I mean, that's, <laughs> really, that's why we have you know, these journalists here to answer them. Um, and I, and I would make that distinction between what's illegal and what's unethical. Uh, if something, if, if information is obtained illegally, it does have legal consequences. I mean, the Supreme Court has made that clear that it's one thing to obtain materials that um, somebody else illegally got and then pass them on. That's, that's Judge Shinlin saying that's uh, Pentagon Papers and, and a whole series of other cases. Um, so on, on the ethics question, uh, I would not have a legal concern, but I would have a, a concern that I would raise with my colleagues who are editors whether this is not is behavior that we wouldn't be able to defend to the public, reputationally and otherwise. Uh, we may have the legal right to, to do it, but I would have them weigh in on whether ethically we'd crossed the line and that the getting of the information tainted what we have. I think if, if something's obtained illegally, then we're in a different uh, place where we may find ourselves uh, actually um, subject to some sort of, of, of legal pushback, some sort of legal claim based on publishing the information. But even then, I think there's going to be a, a discussion of how important is it? Is it how, how much public interest is, is involved here? Is it something the public should know and needs to know? But I think uh, facts, Dave. So, you know, what is your decision? Do you go with the story? What I understand you almost to be saying is if it's really important, you go with the story and fire the reporter. Well, that, what, Freeman was just happening? about to jump in here. So. <laughs> I think, I mean, the, the first thing I'd make clear, Judge, is that we really never sanction lying. Reporters can't lie. That's a fairly solid rule, uh, which I know really no exceptions. The question you're asking, which is harder, is that if you've lied, which we say you shouldn't have done, but if the reporter does it anyhow, does that bar your writing the story? And I think David's answer is right then. I mean, there's kind of a balance against it, but if it's really, really important, then it still might get published. I think, I think that's the combined answer of this part of the room. Um, let Greigel resolve it, though. I'll, I'll try. I am, I'm not going to claim this is Solomonic by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but let's frame the, the question. Um, let's suppose Neil Sheehan was more actively collaborating with Daniel Ellsberg and somehow unlawfully acquiring the Pentagon Papers, and they still come to the news desk at the New York Times. Um, my sense is that the balancing process David and George are describing probably would lead to publication in that instance because of the overwhelming national importance and news value of the information. Nevertheless, that is not going to exculpate the reporter uh, from being potentially exposed to, to uh, 
criminal liability because of their news gathering conduct and acquiring the information. Now, in an interesting way, the newspaper's own interests might diverge from their reporters in that situation. So I would also say, I would add this refinement, that in that context, the news organization has a responsibility to tell the reporter uh, ahead of time, if we publish this, you're likely going to be prosecuted. And that should be a disclosure to your personnel in that context as well, I would say. Nobody said these are easy questions. We always turn up the heat a little bit and make them a little bit harder so that we're, we're right on the edge. Uh, one other question to uh, the folks, uh, uh, to the folks at the Times, or, or are you now, are you at the Times, George? Not anymore. You used yeah, to be, but you're still there. This man got a standing ovation about three years ago, I remember, uh, after you wrote the defense of, of uh, publication, and you made everybody have their, their buttons popping. Uh, one other question I would ask of Dave McCross, counsel. Let's, let's go back to the uh, a seizure by the police of the notes. And uh, Judge Scheinlin didn't speak directly to it, but Judge Scheinlin seemed a little bit sympathetic to the idea that the police have to do their duty and that people shouldn't get in the way. And that's right in the public interest, that the public doesn't want to see the police restricted or see uh, chaos. Uh, the state judges didn't speak to that uh, quite as directly. So let me ask you this. Uh, Dave, you now, you now want to get the notes back and you want to get the person out of jail. Theoretically, you can go down to Foley Square or you can go to the Supreme Court in New York and the state court. Do you ask yourself, which court do I go to? This is a universe that is unheard of in other countries where you can have two different universes and maybe, maybe even get a different result. I don't know. They might, all the judges here might agree, but maybe not. But my point is that McCullough can decide which forum to go to. So can you address whether that ever comes into play? My, my main concern is gonna be what's quicker. Uh, there, there is a federal statute that was passed following the, um, raid on the Stanford newspaper where uh, materials were taken from the newsroom. And that federal statute uh, limits under the Constitution, limits uh, what any law enforcement personnel can do, whether state or federal, to seize news gathering information. So there, there is a, a claim there under federal law that, that one could bring. Uh, I would probably try something much more practical, and, and certainly George raised this earlier, which is that um, it may be going to state court, would be quicker given that it's uh, local police that have done this, but I'm also looking for talking to uh, DCPI and the, uh, the management at that NYPD um, who tend to, uh, we tend to have our disagreements, but at some point I think they would see that this has gone beyond what uh, the police were required to do or could do in the threat of some sort of further legal action, uh, uh, I would hope that I'd be able to convince them that whether it's providing a copy or, or simply returning the material uh, is, is the right way forward and the quickest. I think I had one thing. important uh, point to make that sometimes the solutions to some of these thorny issues are extrajudicial, that you can actually deal with that on a fundamental level. Just for our listeners on Zoom who may not DCPI, Deputy Commissioner for Public Information, New York Police Department. 
Can I just add one thing? You know, there's this perception, and, and I think the press fosters it, that there's this wall between the press and the government and that never the twain shall meet. And the press doesn't admit it because it goes against that perception, which is kind of the constitutional structure. But the fact is, there have been many instances where the press have cooperated with the government, with the police, with the prosecution in terms of um, you know, finding criminals or helping in the prosecution against uh, perpetrators uh, that the press doesn't talk about, but they actually have not published things at the request of government, national security, what have you, on more occasions than I think they would care to admit. So even though we have this uh, conflicting relationship, when the stakes are high and it's really important and it's not government embarrassment which is at stake, which is at stake four-fifths of the time when we don't not publish or we don't cooperate because that's really why a pen is made for the reporters not to see police malfeasance as opposed to real security interests. But if there's real security at stake, then often the press does cooperate with the government, I think, in a very fruitful way. Excuse me, if I may, it's time for my second required interruption. For those of you who are attending on Zoom, your second code word for CLE credit is jury, which I believe will be turning to shortly. Again, your second code word is jury for those of you who are on Zoom. Thank you. We are indeed, which means we have to leap a little bit ahead in the hypothetical because there are so many great issues here and great ones coming toward the end. And that is, uh, we now thing. have an officer facing trial uh, in a case we're going to leap over the uh, uh, officer's uh, reputational problems and go right to this trial where defense lawyer for the uh, police officer is requesting uh, exclusion of the press and public uh, during voir dire and actually sealing of juror questionnaires and paneling of an anonymous jury. Can you make the argument for that, uh, counsel? Well, I'll certainly make the argument for the anonymous jury um, and sitting of questionnaires. I think the closing of voir dire is probably a harder argument. Um, I don't think it was actually done in the Chauvin trial, um, if I have that right. It has been done before. Uh, there are instances where it's been done. I think, I believe it was um, in the Martha Stewart trial, it was done and then overturned by the appellate court, if I'm recalling correctly. So, but, but with regard to anonymous jury, um, I think this is the, the precise type of case. Um, that calls for an anonymous jury. Um, it's a case where um, the defendant's right to a fair trial will be threatened um, if the members of the jury are known. I think there's a, a strong factual predicate based on what's in the hypothetical um, to assume that uh, members of the public will reach out to jurors, uh, potentially threaten jurors on, on both sides of the issue. Um, and I don't see, I mean, you could do all the voir dire you, you want, but I don't think see how you're going to get a fair jury that doesn't feel pressure one way or the other without making them anonymous, at least, at least for the term of the trial and potentially even after the trial. Um, but, so let me see, don't you think as counsel to the media that you would be arguing that there is a public interest in uh, the open courtroom that uh, includes 
jury selection and uh, who the jurors are? Aren't they fulfilling a fundamental public responsibility? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I definitely think that there's a right for the public to know who the jurors are, especially for, someone mentioned it earlier, I can't remember who, but the press really has a watchdog function for some of these democratic processes. And I think allowing or creating jury anonymity kind of clouds that process a little bit. It doesn't allow the public to know what's going on. It doesn't shed light on the judicial process, which is important, like that flow of information is important to, you know, a democratic and participating society. Um, so it really just impedes the press's watchdog function as well. I have a question for her, though. Are you saying then that there's never a case for an anonymous jury? You can't think of any time that it would be important to have an anonymous jury for the safety of the jurors and or for the potential pressure that was you raised here? on those jurors? I, I think the safety of the jurors and, and privacy of the jurors is an important consideration, but I think like as in this hypothetical when the case involves, you know, a member of the police force um, acting with or acting improperly or, you know, the, the police is also, the, the public has a right to know how the police as a public official who is acting in on behalf of their safety, they have a right to know how that trial is being handled, how the jurors are looking at. So absolutely, you know. there's no way the courtroom would be closed. Let us, let's start right, with no, that. I, the, the courtroom is rarely, if ever, closed, and I don't think it would be closed here during voir dire. Right. But the, 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 the jurors remaining anonymous is done with some frequency in very high-profile, very sensitive cases where the protection of the jurors, or to avoid pressure on the jurors, is recognized by the court, and the court decides that they will have an anonymous jury. It's, it's not it's not that out of the question. Right. But I don't think the courtroom would be closed even during voir dire, and I think it would never, no, no judge would ever keep the press out in particular. Is, it, is any prosecution of a police officer then such a high-profile case that no. you need to exclude uh, information about jurors? No, not every case, but there, there, are some, there are cases and there are cases. There are cases where the public has become so outraged, which I would think would be the Chauvin case, that particular one where the video was played on a loop for days, where you really need to protect those jurors. And let, let me add, I mean, I think judges are, are quite careful about this. Yeah. Um, and I think if you look at the Chauvin trial, I think the judge made a very careful record that there were, in <laughs> fact, I think he said he had received you know, hundreds of communications on his voicemail threats and otherwise. The defense lawyers had been threatened. I think the, the prosecutors had gotten calls. So, I mean, you have to have a basis. You have to have a demonstrable basis. Again, we're talking about balancing interests. The folks can watch the voir dire take place. They'll see how jurors answer questions. They'll have some information about the jurors, generally where they're from, what they do. They just won't have the names. They won't have the contact information to be able to reach them at their homes. But, you know, listening to Judge Scheinlin and, and Darren Laverne, your positions on this, which I think are eminently understandable, and you're seeing them play out in the case law with the increasing uh, judicial concern over social media, doesn't this put us in a position where in the high-profile, high-publicity cases, the former presumption of public press and public access to jurors and the juror selection process is now reversed? because of concerns over threats that might be introduced by social media, and in a worst case scenario, the potential 13th juror, uh, judicial con concerns that actually public sentiment might pressure jurors in a way to reach a verdict that they might otherwise not be disposed to, to reach based on the evidence that they see before them. So um, I have concerns about that. I'm not sure that that is the way to go. I think it's a descriptive matter. It's certainly something 
we're seeing develop in our but uh, one response one currently. response that I think it's important to raise is from the jurors' perspective. There are some jurors who simply wouldn't serve if they knew that their name would be mm -hmm. made public through from the beginning of the trial right through the trial. So then you would affect the juror's right to be a juror because they would say, I can't do this if I'm going to be publicly exposed. I have family, I have children, I can't do it. On, on the other side of that coin, I think there was a high-profile prosecution in the federal courts in Illinois. It might have been the Rod uh, Blagojevich prosecution yes. for political corruption where uh, I think there was an anonymous jury impaneled. Um, and somehow the press ferreted out the identity of a juror who had, who had no business being on the panel, either because of an affiliation with a party uh, or they were there for improper purposes. They wanted to write a book or do a, a movie or something. So I'm just point, making the point that uh, the more restrictions you place on press and public access, uh, the more potential there is for perhaps a jury system to be uh, a jury uh, to be contaminated or influenced improperly in other ways. Yeah, I think this is this is a fascinating uh, topic, but I agree with Judge Shanlin completely with respect to the courtroom closure, which is a very different issue than um, anonymous jurors. In fact, just last week before the Court of Appeals, there was a, in New York there was a, a case argued about whether a Supreme Court judge in Manhattan should have closed a particular courtroom. And, and those, there, there's a long history of, of closure, and there's obviously um, you know, a very, you know, very strong policy and, 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 uh, and statutory considerations where we do not close a courtroom. We have public uh, courtrooms. The different issue about jurors, you know, I, don't, I don't know that I agree necessarily that it's about jurors who are scared and we want to protect them, because jurors who are scared often are not going to be fair jurors, and they make me nervous um, in terms of whether or not they should sit on a, a case. The, the more concerning issue for me is whether or not litigants are reaching out to jurors in the old time, you know, and you know, there was allegations that Gotti did that and some other similar uh, cases where they could be, you know, bought and paid for or scared or, or some, something to, to rule a certain way. So that might be a reason and a good reason why we have anonymous um, anonymous jurors. We, we are in a different world now because of social media uh, when we're talking about Chauva and our Eric Garden, uh, Garner or, or Floyd, George Floyd, because people have more access to information. And, and, and Well, that's my next comment, which is these are all going to lead to venue changes because people say they can't get a fair trial because of not just everything they've heard, but perhaps, perhaps in, the, in that jurisdiction. And I I can't talk about a pending case, but a, certainly a case like that, you can imagine um, a, a reasoned venue change because of everything we're hearing. Now, you can't, you know, you can't kill your parents and beg for mercy from the court because you're an orphan, right? Which is uh, what you can't make the firestorm in social media and then say, hey, I can't get a fair trial. But these are things that we are, as judges and as litigants, are going to wrestle with coming into the next uh, decade because the... the the needle is moving, is changing. We should mention, I'm sorry, I just wanted to mention, because um, I think it's very apropos and very of the moment, um, Judge Kaplan, a uh, federal judge in the Southern District, just ruled uh, to have an anonymous jury in the Trump civil case, yeah. right. uh, E. Jean Carroll's uh, suit, which I think is very unusual um, to have an anonymous jury in a yeah. civil case, not a criminal case. And but, the but, justification was 
was contact. I mean, it was it was all the things we've been talking about. Uh, efforts of the public um, to reach out to jurors, um, pressure on the jurors from from both sides, potential even dangerousness concerns. Uh, Related to that. Yeah, and I just wanted to respond to you for one minute. I just said that was one consideration. It certainly no, okay, wasn't no, the only. And I, didn't, okay. I didn't mean it that yeah, critically. Okay, I just okay. meant I, I'm always worried when a juror says, I can't sit well, in but this they rape can, case because I'm scared. But they can sit if they're not identified. I've had that. I mean, I had John Gotti three times, so right. <laughs> I, went through, I went through this situation. Three trials, three mistrials. Well, one of the things that I think is new about social media now is that people can reach out to jurors much more easily, or jurors perceive that they're being reached out to much more easily. You don't need to be a mafia head to threaten juror. You can instead yeah. you know, call on your online followers who will then post things online, and people will see them and feel as though they're being targeted by name. And I do think, not to talk about any penny pace, I do think people feel alarmed when they feel like they're either private citizens or government lawyers, and suddenly their names are broadcast you know, on Twitter, on other social media sites. And it's hard to say that's a threat in the First Amendment sense, like it's not going after you personally, it's not going after your address, and yet it's an unfamiliar feeling for people, and I do think it influences whether people are willing to serve on juries, whether they're willing to be a witness, whether they're willing to be a government attorney um, in this like new age. Is there a circumstance in which a judge might appropriately order jurors uh, not to speak to the media? Always. Always. Yeah. Every juror, you mean after the trial? I mean after the trial. Oh, no. No. Has I, this happened? Yeah. And yeah. in, in New York State? I'm not aware of the New York case, but I, I know for the, the Derek Chauvin prosecutions, the... Uh, Excuse me. Um, folks can't hear you without oh, the microphone. Thank you. Uh, in, in the George Floyd prosecutions, Derek Chauvin, in his criminal trial in Minnesota State Court, the judge issued an order prohibiting the jurors from speaking to the press for six months, uh, and it went unchallenged, so that is now at least some precedent in the state of Minnesota. And certainly it raises the obvious question of um, diminished news value in juror interviews down the line that often have tremendous public value and perform a real meaningful service by explaining what the jurors considered in reaching a verdict, which often serves to enhance the legitimacy uh, of a verdict in what might be an otherwise controversial case. In the federal side, the officers who were accompanying Chauvin, they were prosecuted in federal court. The judge imposed a restriction on press contact with jurors for 10 years. And that, too, was allowed to go unchallenged. So that is now, again, another uh, something of a precedent that we might see revisited again down the line in the future. But I think both of those are very difficult to justify. Let me just ask quickly on an aggressive reporter here. If you knew that uh, a judge had said that jurors were not supposed to talk to reporters, would that keep you away from the juror's door? No, absolutely not. Uh, I would definitely, as a reporter, I'm always trying to find out as much of the facts as I can and exercise that. I'm also you know, aware of two other dynamics that I don't think really are, have been mentioned here. One is, if I was a judge, which I'm not, I would be very concerned about anything that smacked of star chamber justice, any type of, any type of measure that somehow in the name of public safety or reasonableness. Reasonableness is often used for things like uh, 
restricting appropriate access to information. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's very, I think we have to be very concerned in the criminal justice system on any measure that would uh, restrict the oversight of, of the criminal justice system. And I also think, you know, we talk about social media, but fundamentally, and I, I wrote a story about this a couple of years ago, in, in the academic world uh, that covers things like uh, media in general, there's a term called the news deserts. I know the Times has mentioned stories. I know I did a story uh, about that not too long ago about news deserts. The fact is most, there are large swaths of this country that have no newspaper there whatsoever, no type of organized exercise of the First Amendment. And so I think that's got to be really kept in, in context, particularly these days. There is no Brooklyn Eagle. There is no daily newspaper in the Bronx. A lot of the, the papers that are in Manhattan generally uh, are geared towards a national audience, not necessarily locally and such. So and, and it's, it's actually rare that a, a large entity has a newspaper a, a, or some type of major news organization. So I think a lot of things of like calling your, calling your lawyer to come into court and try to keep a court open uh, or to insist that the names of jurors be kept public. Um, I, I think these days, particularly, it's a big different world than it was when we were young reporters and we had cards in our wallets, you know, or whatever, in our pockets, and you'd, you'd have the, you'd, you'd stand up and you'd, you'd tell, to ask the judge to allow us to call our, our lawyer so that our lawyer could show up before you close the court. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. I, I don't think there are news organizations that have that wherewithal. Part of the reason it doesn't exist anymore is that judges have gotten used to the regime where courts are presumptively open and they don't close courtrooms. I mean, I used to come down here once a week, uh, you know, down to the, the state or federal courthouse downtown, and I had to have a suit in my locker in the office in case I had to rush down. My last 10 years, I never had to go anywhere because the courts were open. It didn't come up. Uh, so I, I don't think it's due to the fact that the papers don't have the personnel. It's due to the fact that the court system has changed and has become much more open. I think in the name of candor, having been a trial judge myself, uh, when one issues the caution to the juries, now ladies and gentlemen, the jury, you reach your verdict, don't talk about it to anyone, uh, publicly or otherwise. The real, the, one of the reasons for that, at least in part, in my mind, when I was a trial judge, of course one thinks about the First Amendment, but the truth of the matter is that the judges are concerned, at least in part, that as uh, Steve Wu will tell you, uh, once jurors start talking about what happened inside the jury room, then there's going to be a motion for a mistrial because one of the jurors will be alleged to have said something that contaminated the trial, and, and judges don't want to open up that, that door. Uh, so part of the thing is that they just don't want to do the trial all over again based on uh, assertions or revelations made by jurors. Am I out of line in that, Jill? Is, isn't that a concern that judges would have well, that they don't want 
all this to be public because they're not going to be motions to set aside the verdict based on some comment that one of the jurors made. I mean, I'm, I'm being never... candid. That, that at least in part was on my mind. I'm never going to jump for joy when I get a post-judgment motion because some, something happened <laughs> with a juror. But I, I speak to all my jurors. I have for 18 and a half years. I go in and I don't talk about the case, thank them for their service. I'm going to tell you more than nine times out of ten, they say, can we talk about this now? Or if they don't ask, I tell them you can talk to anyone you want now. Um, I do say that. Um, I do. cross my fingers when I say it, but I do say it. You say you can talk to anyone. You can so do whatever you want now. You green light to go to the newspapers and say, you know what, no, number, juror number four made a remark that just was, this is horrifying. Uh, let's say, let's make a really bad, let's, some ugly racial remark. Next thing you know, you have a motion. Well, you know what, if there really was something ugly and racial and there was an inappropriate verdict, I'm probably going to, you know, take that seriously. Yeah, and then, maybe then, then judge, well, it seems to me... open the door. But, well, no, I, I agree. I agree with her completely. With, with, yes, I also told the jurors you can speak to anybody, including the press, but you don't have to. It's completely up to each of you individually. And judge, you can I, do I it. would submit to take your example. If there's something that went horribly awry during deliberations, again, the public should have the right to know whether the system yeah. functioned properly. And the defendant and, and, should know. But in, <clears throat> judge, in all your discussion, you haven't you haven't hit upon the balance of why. It should be open, and the answer is that it justifies, usually, not always, but usually makes the public more accepting of the verdict because what the jury did is rationally explained, even if the community is very angry at the outcome. So it's a good thing not only to educate, but to, to cause people to accept the verdict because it explains it rather than has it come out of the blue in opposite to what the uh, community would like to see happen? You, know, you don't even know why that's the greatest point in the world, because when you have a non-jury trial, the judge has to explain the reasons right. for the verdict. And if you have a jury trial, there's no explanation. It's guilty or not guilty, and nobody knows what went on. So I 100% agree with you that if a juror wants to explain and, and ex what happened and the deliberations, that's their right. Now, I agree there's a terrible risk that somebody's going to say somebody said something. But every once in a while, that risk is correct, and you find out that th this verdict should be overturned and has been overturned, and there's been a second or third trial. So it's happened that that information is important. And you say there is even a virtue in it. It can be. Yeah. It can be. And what, can I bring up what Mike said about the jury not being approachable for 10 years? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, valuable time is lost during which you could ask for post-conviction relief or appeal. And you haven't talked to those jurors until 10 years later, and good luck with that 10 years later. The other, the other point, Judge, is that if, if at least, if the, judge, if the jury was anonymous during the trial, at the very, very least, their names and addresses should be given out at the end of the trial or their phone numbers so that the press can, can interview them without chasing them down as they leave the courthouse. It's really a fairly you know, rowdy scene often because the reporters are trying to get to the jurors. And if there's a way of getting them without having to chase their cars or chase them through the, the hallways of the courthouse, it would look a lot more civil. So I think that's another reason to not have this total anonymity.
Right. from another jurisdiction and said that because of Minnesota and the Chauvin case, uh, there were problems, I'm going to assume and presume that there are going to be problems here and therefore closed. Uh, that, 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 I think, would, would not fly. By the way, I wanted to say one thing, which, is, which I learned in preparing for today. In New York State, I don't think you can get an anonymous jury. Am I right about that? Most courts hold that you can't have an anonymous jury? Yeah, I think that, I think that might be right because there's a provision that says that names have to be published, and the separate one that says addresses can be hidden. I don't know if names can be hidden. I've certainly never seen one. Has it ever, is anybody familiar to you? Has it ever been? I believe there has been at least one trial in New York where there was an anonymous jury. I did not conduct it. And was, it uh, was it questioned? I, I don't know if that's still pending on appeal or if, if that was upheld or not upheld. Uh, it's certainly far from common. In terms of the suggestion, though, that the names and addresses of the jurors be given out 
to the press or to anyone after the trial ended, that would be an express violation of a statute in New York. That would be illegal for New York That's court right. or trial judge to do. Only the appellate division is authorized to give out uh, juror contact information. They do it very rarely. And even then, it often comes up, usually comes up, when it is, as you've said, the defense lawyer who wants to make a motion to set aside the verdict because they believe there's juror misconduct or some individual juror went to the defense lawyer and, and revealed something or volunteered something, and now they want to interview all the other jurors so that they can really make a, a complete motion and, and, and have a record that they can hold a hearing based on, and the trial court cannot release that information, and the appellate division can and usually doesn't. Can Rex and I now give you all a hand? Thank hey, you. Okay. thank you all. Thank you very much. Yeah, what? I think we're uh, I think we're uh, about to adjourn. Uh, this has been a really great conversation. I'm sorry we didn't get to all the issues. Uh, it would have been a lot of fun to get to them all. But uh, special thanks to the main author of this, Mike Friedel, who made this uh, high quality. <laughs> <laughs> Do we still have uh, Judge Stein on the line here? Or are we? Uh, yes, I'm here. I'm here and uh, have been uh, listening intently. And I uh, think it has been an extremely thought-provoking and educational and fascinating conversation uh, in the long tradition of the Fair Trial Free Press Conference. Um, and I would like to thank uh, um, all of our panelists for uh, being so engaged and, and uh, so informative about all of this. Thank you. Thank you.